AUB has been with me as far back as I can remember. Growing up in the States, hearing stories from my father about his undergraduate years studying economics, about a little apartment he rented with his siblings in Ross Beirut, about beginning his master's degree in 1974, forced to leave in 1975, not to the States right away, but back to Tripoli, the green line that prevented him from continuing his master's degree, eventually flying out with my mom to Texas and continuing his education abroad and later his professional career. But whenever my father reflected on Lebanon, his stories always came back to AUB, fond memories of that campus of Ras Beirut. And he took Ras Beirut with him and never let it go. Most of my aunts and uncles are graduates from AUB and family friends in Lebanon and abroad, most of them belong to AUB. I belong as well. I did my master's degree in Middle East studies and I owe my Walk Beirut tour, its inception, to years of studying Middle East history, Lebanon's story, and Beirut's particularities at AUB. This podcast, The Beirut Banyan, is named after the trees of knowledge that keep growing on campus. And whenever I detach politics from my father's story, I think back on two things. Walking on the Corniche, beyond Lower Gate, looking up towards AUB campus and College Hall up on the hill, or walking on AUB campus itself. From Penrose Gate all the way to Medical Gate, down to Lower Campus and back up. Those walks, learning about my father as a friend, are the most treasured memories I hold. And fittingly, there's a bench in front of the economics department dedicated to my father's memory. And next to that bench is one for Bess of Flehan, a dear family friend who cared deeply for this country, both of them paying the ultimate price for Lebanon. In the details box below, there is a link to an Atlantic piece written by AUB's current president, Fadlo Khouri. Check out the piece, because after reading it, I felt very proud to belong to AUB. In the middle of the uprising, while classes were on hold, Fadlul Khouri invited me into his office, and we reflected on all that's happening the past two weeks and the wider story of AUB's legacy in Beirut, in Lebanon, in the Middle East. And we talked about everything regarding AUB, from its inception, Daniel Bliss in the 1860s, to where it stands today, and how AUB manages Lebanon's politics without taking a direct stance, but encouraging its students to freely express their opinions while pursuing their academic career, a determination for education and a right to pursue their individual liberties. And I'm honored to have the current president of AUB, Fadlul Khouri, for this episode of the Beirut Banyan. terrain, which is really what's happening at the moment, let's step back in time. This podcast is called the Beirut Banyan, and for me, the Banyan tree is the, I think, sturdiest uh, symbol for AUB, because these trees of knowledge keep growing. They keep spreading. 
Even College Hall, where we're sitting, did not survive Lebanese history. This is a replica of College Hall. So the banyan trees have survived, and they keep spreading. Knowledge and all that comes with it. Today, 2019, are you convinced, are you persuaded that the ideals Daniel Bliss started in this part of the Middle East, are they still here? Are they still strong? And do you see AUB continuing to persevere through education and knowledge, at least in our lifetime and, and generations to come? So thank you for the, the introduction. I feel confident that AUB's ideals, Daniel Bliss's vision, Howard Bliss's vision, Bayard Dodge's vision, and the vision of professors and students for more than 153 years are alive and well in this university. Uh, I think you can see an idealism today and a confidence more so today that has not been lost despite wars and economic challenges uh, and substantial re-examination by the university of its purpose, of its soul, of its mission and vision. I think today the university is alive and well and is at the heart of what I would call intellectual growth thought purpose in Lebanon and the region. Uh, the, the goal and the mission of Daniel Bliss to build the bases for greatness, not so much to be seen himself as great, uh, have served the university well. The university has been a banyan in, in some challenging times. Arguably a banyan among oaks in the U.S. and cedars here in Lebanon. The university remains resilient and resonant. Yeah. I believe more so now than it's been for a long time as we've taken a purposefully outward vision. It's not enough anymore to just educate the best and brightest, to care for the sickest, to serve the least fortunate. It has become important in this time failed and fading states mm. and fractured societies for us to stand for and to propagate a hope for something better. Well, that's a very optimistic uh, perspective on a, on a university that I think in my own family has educated seven of my relatives. And I think we all have that in common in, in Beirut growing up, that we all have family and, and generations that have been here. And it's interesting that the students are always educated properly and it's the last two generations that these students when they're when they finish and they graduate they do their best to leave Lebanon is that what you're talking about when, it, when you're saying states failing and the environment collapsing around us is that the the strength of AUB or is that in a way almost like the uh, the, the sad reality of AUB it educates Lebanon's brightest and then they they run away so I think that one of the unsustainable formulas for Lebanon and much of the Arab world, with the exception of the oil-wealthy yes. Gulf states, which yes. have a different ethos, mm -hmm. we're all Arab, but they have a different version of their Arabism, I would argue, yeah. is that the best and brightest immigrate because the opportunity, not just economic or financial, uh, but social and political, just doesn't exist in their home countries. So they depart to excel, they depart to lead, they depart to participate. Yes. 
And what we've been saying clearly, I hope, the last four years is this is a failed formula for state and society building. If you are deliberately exporting your best and brightest, you are doomed to be a minor league ball club and to fail as a sustainable entity. And what we've insisted on is at least a serious examination, if not the overt development of opportunities for at least some of the best and brightest to stay in Lebanon and Syria and Palestine, Iraq and Jordan, the most similar of these societies, but also across the Arab world and Africa. It interests me to note that we now have probably more students coming in from sub-Saharan Africa than we do who are citizens of the Gulf states, okay? Really? That shift is happening in our lifetime. Wow. And we're seeing more and more kids come here from emerging societies, what Mm. I would call Mm. as burgeoning democracies or burgeoning states, than we do from some of our traditional states like Saudi Arabia, uh, the Emirates. Is that is that because the American model is now being replicated in Gulf countries where you have NYU and Abu Dhabi yeah. and Harvard and I think Doha, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. Is it that kind of uh, situation? That I think that's part of the reason. I think part of the answer is that they have internal alternatives. Well, none of those alternatives, with the possible exception of NYU, uh, Abu Dhabi, and uh, American University of Sharjah are of even above average mm. quality. Mm. Yes. They're locally available. Right, right. Uh, and uh, they require less travel. And we all, mm. in this era of unmitigated and unrelenting interaction via smartphones and other communication devices, we all feel perhaps that it's not a bad thing for our children to get their undergraduate education. Yeah. At a non at a not unbridgeable. Sorry about the du- double negative distance from the mothership, from the parents, from the family unit. Yeah. So that's understandable. <clears throat> but also, I think that uh, while there is generally universal consternation about American political and foreign policy decisions, there is an enhanced interest in the liberal. Uh, education ethos, liberal arts ethos, married with technology that an American education can provide. And that's, I think, probably most relevant today, right? I mean, yes, that, it's most yeah, relevant. These are skills now you can apply here and sure. elsewhere. Sure. But let's step back again, back to Daniel Bliss. I always find the year striking. It's one year after an American Civil War ends. Two. 1864. Well, there, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> eh, 64, 65, you're about right. About yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I should have done math more. No, <laughs> Give or right. take. Yeah. But it's a short time after a country coming out of its own civil war, and you have a Protestant missionary who opens an American institution, a different name back then, Syrian Protestant College, but it's the foundation for what we're, where we are right now. It's striking that you have somebody coming from a country out of war opening an institution in a part of the world that seemed, in a sense, relatively calm, coming out of its own mountain war, but stabilizing as well. And then you have what may be the golden years of of Beirut, this sort of tiny village growing with the campus growing at the same time. 
Hamra goes from vegetable fields and fertile soil to becoming a, what would then become later a bustling part of the city. Do you think Daniel Bliss realized that he was opening something of extreme significance to the Middle East back then? Or do you think this was just sort of an anomaly that I'm, I've been brought to open a small school under Ottoman rule, and really I have limited goals here and that's that. Or do you think he realized that this is going to serve the, the region fundamentally for the next 153 years? So I think Daniel Bliss, uh, and I'm not an expert on his history, mm-hmm. uh, just an amateur historian. Uh, Daniel Bliss was always an ambitious man with regard mm-hmm. to the impact of his school. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> he was sent back after participating in high school education here to obtain the funds and Yes. Get a charter. Get a charter, as it turned out, in New York State, and supporters through his connection with the Dodge family yeah. for the nascent university. But I think that initially his scope was more limited. Initially, the university, the college, is really what it was, intended to convert more people to the Protestant faith yes. and to provide a mixture of American liberal education, such as Daniel Bliss himself had received in Amherst. Yes. And frankly, more religious instruction. And I don't think that their targets initially were to just convert Catholics and Orthodox, Mm -hmm. uh, which was really their only success. They were unsuccessful in converting Muslim Sunnis or Shia or Druze. They were unsuccessful in converting Maronites for the most part. That's interesting. Uh, they, They had... Most of their success was in the Greek Orthodox and Greek Catholic community. Mm-hmm. And it was not a particularly impressive uh, success <laughs> with the exception of uh, my <clears throat> family ancestry on all sides and, and, and other areas. What they didn't anticipate was that in 1882, 16 years after forming, they would have the Lewis crisis when Edwin Lewis, himself a devout Protestant, yes. would as part of his baccalaureate address, go over the work, then shaking, roiling the 19th century of Charles Darwin. And the resultant fallout of the so-called Lewis affair with Daniel Bliss, who was by then fully in charge of his board, deciding with the board to force Lewis to resign within six months and the subsequent loss of people like Van Dyke and and others, Mm -hmm. his... uh, faculty who are largely Occidental, not Oriental, as the saying was then, but fully versed in the Arabic language and able to teach in Arabic Mm -hmm. and translate important tomes in in Arabic from the Bible to anatomy textbooks. That departure changed the course of the university. And Daniel Bliss was a very resourceful and flexible leader and saw the direction where his small college was succeeding yes. and where he was not, and that shifted. You know, it's interesting, you're mentioning the family names, and it's I've never heard them referenced this way. I know them as Van Dyke Hall, and you think Medical Gate. I've never actually put a, a, a sort of a historic sure. name to the building. So it's actually nice to hear their names. In what, well, what Cornelius Van Dyke and yeah. West and others were West, faculty. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, in, in a way, the late 19th century, you see what is eventually turning into what we have now, a, a, a secular institution promoting secular ideals. Of course, AUB is positioned in the most sectarian environment, 
possible. Forget its foundations for a moment. Its foundations are not sectarian a la Lebanese standards. It's a different sort of form of, of religion. This is a sectarian society ruled by sectarian law, and you have sectarianism is entrenched here. What do you think is AUB's contribution to promoting what you described earlier, liberal ideals in America, in the heart of a sectarian shift that we're seeing right now? Does it still, do you think AUB has anchored itself as that secular role model for Lebanese to turn to, and maybe even the region or sub-Saharan Africa? Or do you think it falls victim itself to the surrounding environment that it, it really is unable to push through those secular ideals? I think AUB has been successful at remaining itself secular, hmm. not worrying about falling into the infamous mythal or this idea that for every Christian or yeah. Maronite you have to appoint a Shiite or a Sunni or you know I, I, I don't think we've fallen into that. So internally, there's no sort of we have to <clears> there are no quotas. We don't yeah. abide by the Lebanese quota system or sectarian right. system. I think we've stayed above that. I make it a case to not know no. our faculty or our students' right. uh, political or sectarian makeup. I need to know what their views are when they share them with me or when they yeah. ask me a certain question because I need to understand how the question's being framed. Yeah. Um, so I think we've stayed above that particular fray very successfully throughout our history. I think it's especially important now because, in my view, <clears throat> the Lebanese Civil War and, more importantly, the post-Civil War aftermath consecrated those sectarian Absolutely. divides. Absolutely. And that's the great failure of the Taif Agreement and yeah. the post-war reconciliation. It buried the institutional memory yes. of just who and what happened, yeah. who did what and what happened. Uh, not usually the way to heal from a historical wound to ignore yeah. it. And it laid the basis for what was supposed to be a transitional state. Yeah. Uh, and I believe that the framers of the Lebanese constitution initially always intended that Lebanon would become, in my view, a more egalitarian, more inclusive, more secular state. Yeah. However, the mithaq or the agreement that was brokered as part of getting everyone on board for the separation from France uh, has persisted and has been interpreted far more rigidly than the Constitution. But you see that the post-Civil War, you think, is more of a, it's the solidifying the things that we got wrong in our yes. history. Yeah. I believe that <clears throat> uh, Lebanon post-Civil War yeah. has largely failed mm. to learn from history yeah. or to build on from its strengths. And yeah. by that I mean Yes, you built a beautiful series of highways and <laughs> tourist traps and other things, but for example, the erosion of higher education, which was mandated and supported by all the Lebanese politicians, the yeah. proliferation of institutions of little value other than as profit-making institutions, the erosion of public education, in particular the targeting of the public school systems and the public university, eroding them, uh, dividing them up as sectarian pieces to be yeah. uh, divided up in terms of influence and profit, 
and strengthening the private sector to an extreme. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I think that that has been among the damage of the post-war uh, Lebanese organizations and has led directly to what you're seeing in the streets right. and, and unfair distribution of wealth and resources, yeah. an abandonment of its responsibilities by the state that we've seen coming yes. uh, for a while, and but is now yeah. full, fully formed. And now we'll, we'll get into that later because that's the subject that affects both of our generations. Sure. And you, you have more perspective because you, you saw the Civil War. I mean, you, you remember the Civil War. Yes. I'm a Civil War product, but I know the post-war environment, and I don't think our stories are that different. Yes. We both see a degradation of politics and economics. Before that, though, I've always found it fascinating that AUB is never forced to take sides in domestic issues, or for that matter, regional. To a certain degree, it adjusts itself according to where things, it, it, it finds itself able to pursue its mission given all the constraints. And I remember this in, in the middle of 2006 during the July War, the focus of AUB was to make sure that the fall semester was on track. It was delayed only by two weeks, I believe. And I remember coming back to campus and listening to, uh, was it John Waterbury? Yes, it was John Waterbury giving his speech saying that this is going to, this war is horrible, but we are here and we're going to reopen and we'll stay. Uh, you know, during the Civil War, AUB had itself forced in a way to build an East Beirut campus to a degree, its own buildings there. It stayed open. Uh, my relatives, my aunt graduated in, in the 80s during the worst times of fighting. So AUB's always around. And I find that to be quite, uh, quite a relief because Lebanon can go to hell during its history, but AUB survives. Why do you think that kind of situation exists? Why is AUB, and I mean this in a, in a positive way, what is it about this campus and this institution that doesn't sync with Lebanon? It stays open. College Hall is bombed. It's rebuilt. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's almost like it's shielded to a point. The president of AB is assassinated on campus. AB stays open. What is it about this institution that makes it a shining light, in a sense? Sure. So <clears throat> it's, it's from <clears throat> the examples you give and other ones, which I'll elaborate on briefly, it's clear that the university has experienced danger, including danger of closure. Yeah. Uh, that danger was most acute in 1975-76 when the university actually ran out of money to pay its faculty and staff. Um, and oh, did it, was it forced to shut down? No. Uh, what happened was the board chair and the president at the time, Howard Page, and then subsequently before and after Calvin Plimpton, and then the president, Sam Kirkwood at the time, were forced to write letters to all the tenured faculty and others letting them know they may have to release them. Those letters were not sent because the then Lebanese prime minister during the war, Rashid Karami, yes, yeah. was able to float an 18 million Lebanese pound loan to keep the university open. That that was paid before the 70s were over. So, also the Lebanese state, the Lebanese state came through under, frankly, one of its most uh, strategic leaders. I think it's yes. fair to say, yeah. uh, despite not being college educated himself. Yeah. Prime Minister Karami genuinely saw AUB's value and the catastrophe that would come to Lebanon yeah. if this most precious of institutions 
fold. It's interesting, even he's in Tripoli. He's in Tripoli. Not necessarily not an AB student. To, can't come to His brother is an AB student. Yeah. Oh, Ma. Ma. Oh, Ma. Okay, yes. Okay. But he saw, yeah. as I believe his father did, mm. and his uh, brothers, <clears throat> the value of the institution. It's fair to say that that view of the institution as being invaluable is shared by every political leader I've met, and not just as lip service. Yeah. Now, of course, each has a different design or a view or an intention for the institution, mm -hmm. but AUB, in addition to treating the war victims and the most complicated patients in its medical school, is the aspirational university for most political leaders, yeah. irrespective of their creed. For example, Kamal Jumblat himself, a University of Saint-Joseph graduate, insisted on his son, yes. Walid, being educated yes. here. Yes. And you see this, these two great universities, as the universities of choice yeah. for people, including political leaders. And this was expressed acutely during the period before I started, when the university was under siege from press, faculty, students, and others. You're referring to the the initial sort 2013 of, yeah, to Arab, 2015 Arab Spring and uh, yeah, post Arab yeah, Spring post period. Yeah, yeah, the university was under attack in the media and other places, and and the sense I got from all the political leaders, officially and unofficially, yeah. that they felt a viable and confident AUB was necessary for the country, not yes. just for their children or their grandchildren, yeah. but for the greater good. And I believe that still exists today. But more important by far than the political leaders is the sense of the peoples of this region, the Lebanese and Palestinians and Syrians and Saudis and Iraqis and Jordanians and Iranians and others, that this university still plays an essential role in exemplifying the best of American values, not the best and the best of American education, and steering clear yeah. of American foreign policy. So in a sense, AUB is the neutral zone yes. for all players in the region, that they still depend to a, to a point on this institution surviving. I used to always tell friends that as long as AUB is around, Lebanon will stay around. It'll stick around. If AUB goes, I really think Lebanon goes with it. And I mean that as a, as a real sense of the state that whatever it is now, I think it, it, the fact that this campus stays relevant shows that, you know. So there's some history to that, which yeah. is during the First World War, when Mount Lebanon was being isolated yeah. and a third of the population, from the data I've seen, died out of starvation and disease, yeah. died from starvation and disease. And the faculty of the University of Saint-Joseph were under siege from the Ottoman authorities. Right. Those faculty members took refuge here. Saint-Joseph faculty? Yes. So they came Leadership. To they came to AUB. Oh, yeah. wow. The university here stayed open, had tremendous uh, respect from the Ottoman authorities. Hmm. And even when the Dodgers and the Blisses were involved yeah. almost openly in supplying wheat and other resources to Mount Lebanon. Yeah. That was not blocked by the Ottoman authorities as it might have been from somewhere else. That's fascinating. So they, they were willing to go after Saint-Joseph. Yes, they were willing to go after For, for its education, not for its... I mean, it's not that you had... It was perceived as a French university. Right, and then this yeah. one... Which was is seen as 
not just an American university, but a university that was a critical resource for the region. It seems that is the line, that it's not always perceived as an American institution. Sure. Yeah. Although it is. It is, absolutely. I mean, it's in the... You know, it's it's interesting. That's the only thing that's changed is the name. Yeah. Otherwise, it's the same, more or less. It's the same structure. Yeah. Anyway, sorry I interrupted you. So that's a very... So so that that experiment no, no no that experiment repeated itself during the Lebanese civil war when yeah you know on one occasion uh, one of the political leaders Bashir Jamal gave the order and I think this is a historical fact to shell the university and he quickly when is the, it's in this the, was in seventy eight I think deliberately at AUB well they were being pounded by the Syrians and mm-hmm. yes some shells came at AUB mm-hmm. to. There was the question of the off-campus program. Would it be closed? He wanted to send a message. And he was quickly uh, brought to reality that given the importance of this university for the country and for all communities, that history would probably remember any further shelling of the American University of Beirut's campus. Certainly the university has tilted politically in certain directions over time. It's tilted to a point. To a point, right? Exactly. It never, it never is, I mean, the press coverage that you're referring to, and I remember this, it wasn't, it, it recovered quickly. So it's not, it's not an open embrace of either way, which I find it, that, that is structural to the institution. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm guessing French rule, the AUB did not have an open sort of support of the mandate or did not openly challenge it either. That's, that's fair to say. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I think, you know, Bayard Dodge was as much as Daniel or Howard Bliss, the steward of AUB's growth golden era, he mm. brought research dollars, he brought philanthropy, he brought yes. opening to all parts of the world. Yeah. University became more and more and more diverse under him. It yeah. grew in, in, in research, it grew in education, it grew in reach. He himself was not an apolitical actor, as none of us are in a way. I mean, while we're not conventional politicians, we have to keep the paths of... Uh, communication open to all. He avoided conflict for the most part with the uh, French mandate. Howard Bliss was more overt Mm. in speaking out for Arab self-determination at the time of post-World War I of King Faisal's Faisal's revolt and his his declaration of an Arab state based in Damascus. Uh, Howard Bliss was overt in his support of Arab self-determination. Um, Bayard Dodge was perhaps more cautious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps we've been ov- more overt than other presidents in supporting people's right to self-determination. And I think that's the right middle yes. ground for us to take right. without condemning any of the authorities, which I think is... At, at, at this point, not our role. And that links it back to its American credentials yeah, to, yeah. To, to a degree, because that is embedded in American values. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I think you'll see now, <clears throat> although it's been less than I would have anticipated, college presidents, starting with the president of Bard College, now increasingly the president of Harvard, Larry Bakow, feels emboldened to speak out. Uh, certainly the president of Columbia. We've been outspoken mm-hmm. Uh, when we've disagreed with the American president, uh, in my yes. case, on yes. two fairly straightforward, from my opinion, cases yeah. given our constituency, yeah. on the so-called Muslim ban yes. and on the uh, the the uh, 
reassignment, the move of the American embassy to Jerusalem when we posited that any such move should be accompanied by a move of the American embassy to the Palestinians to Jerusalem also, that, yeah. that this was a unilateral move. So I think college presidents today are not expected just to hand out degrees. Yeah. And the good thing about this university, there's a rich tradition of that, certainly dating back to Howard Bliss and in more subtle ways to Daniel Bliss. You know, around this time leading up to World War II, I, I was very lucky. I used to live in a music school that was turned into a student pension run by Kamel Salibi, who was, of course, an institution to himself. His nephew was running the, and this is just down Bliss Street at the end of the police station, Mahfirah just behind it. The building's gone now. And I would, Kamel Salibi would share stories, and he would sometimes, I could sort of go through some archives and I found statistics for AUB graduates in the 1940s, and I found that the building itself was called Jerusalem House, and that it was used for students and pilgrims journeying through Beirut on their way to Jerusalem or back, and that the student body at AUB was made up of many Palestinian names that are not Arabic, but they're Hebrew. And I find that to be fascinating. AUB even served Jerusalem until World War II until the creation of Israel. So I, I always enjoy that little sort of moment that AUB is not just for this, I mean, it also served Absolutely. The, the, later, I mean, yeah. It, so certainly there are members of the Palestinian Jewish community who are educated at AUB, including yeah. at least one Supreme Court justice that we know of was quite distinguished in his time. As, as Daniel Bliss said, all manners of men, you know, Muslims yes. and Christians and Jews and, yeah. and Buddhists and atheists. Um, and so I don't believe that the university failed to serve any community exactly, at that time. Yeah. But I, I mean, to me, it's fascinating. AUB, mm-hmm. even before this whole mess started, True. was educating Jerusalem's students. Yeah. I think it speaks volumes. It does. Now, the university, of course, has doesn't have a flawless history. You know, it's been roundly criticized by the uh, excellent uh, one of the preeminent uh, 19th and 20th century historians, Osama Muqtasi, he feels it played a role that was largely based on a, some racially flawed... Uh, Are you referring to this book that just came out? The, I'm referring um, to his original books. Oh, his original yeah, books, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, his, we'll, we'll, we'll preface his new book here. He's going to have a book launch here, and I believe yeah. one at the University of San Joseph. But I do believe that it's difficult, and he and I have had this argument, and I've had this argument with others, to judge 19th century men and women by 21st century standards. Um, Lincoln himself, arguably the greatest leader of the 19th century, had his flaws. And... uh, it would be you know, odd if you were converting people to the Protestant faith today. Yes, but it would Daniel be. Bliss Very odd. would be uh, forgiven for that in, in his time. Yes. <laughs> it was part of his purpose. Sure. You may be more successful. But I doubt it. I <laughs> suspect not. as a uh, as a an ordained minister and yeah, a doctor yeah. in the uh, in the faith, he knew far more about the Protestant okay, faith yeah, in the Bible enough. than I do. Well, then we should I could give him a run for his money in biology or, or medicine. Or if we brought him back to life today, I doubt he would be trying to convert. <laughs> and he you would just never know. But you know? yes, I think he stopped trying to convert. <laughs> yeah. For most of his tenure here. I see. So even then, he yeah. sort of let it. I think down. he he was busy with 
as he said repeatedly, laying the basis for greatness. He yes. had a grand yeah. vision and a grand plan for the university that started to really manifest itself yeah. immediately, but it was much more clear in the latter half, in the last decade yeah. of the uh, 19th century, in the first decade of the 20th, even after he turned things over to his son. Yes. University was flowering, was getting students from all over. Is it under the French mandate that the campus reaches its current boundaries? No, the campus has continued to expand uh, all the way even, until recently. So, yeah. so the, I mean, roughly the, the boundaries we know today that we're familiar with, when was this sort of established? As I think it's largely completed. I mean, the, the larger spaces was completed, I would say, by the end of the Second World War. So, okay. yes, at the, yeah. towards the end of the mandate, it was still uh, enlarging. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the university failed to capture, forgive the word, more real estate that would have allowed us to reach out into the community after that it becomes self-contained. In which direction and are you talking about? In, in both physically? Physically, yeah. Physically. So where would that be towards? Uh, uh, you know, I think uh, more engagement in Ras Beirut, Ainlim Raisi, mm, more mm, mm. development of our furthest reaching campus, which is, of course, Eric, the campus okay. uh, yeah. in the 1950s. Yes. You know, that, that piece of land gets acquired and built. That's much larger than AUB. So that continues to happen. Is that still owned by AUB? Yes, it's all owned by AUB. Fully owned by AUB. So I think not just capturing land, but developing it, uh, having more of a moderating influence as the university had during the Lebanese Civil War. I don't think anyone can claim it's a coincidence that the university had a moderating effect on the amount of bloodshed in the region, although some imbeciles who are free with their opinions, have claimed that it was really Faisal's restaurant that kept the moderating influence. Oh. If you've ever been to Faisal's, well, and yeah. you know how small it was and how quaint and enjoyable it was, <laughs> it wasn't exactly frequented by huge numbers of people. You're referring to what is now McDonald's, of course, just across Main Gate. Yes, yes. It is so identified with those years, the 1980s. Mm -hmm. I know it was around before. I know that it was... Frequented forties, fifties, sixties, eighties. But yeah. the war years to me are the unspoken years of AUB's sure. history. Were, did you visit the campus during the war itself? Sure. So you were at AUB in the in the eighties. I was. I started on campus here, mm -hmm. I, uh, but I grew up very close to this campus since yeah. I went to IC and I lived just off of Jean d'Arc. And that's just before the war is breaking out, or no, no, I, I. I was here for the most part between 1970 mm -hmm. and 1982, away for one year, 76, 77. So, I so up grew, until the Israeli invasion. Really. Yeah, I left after the Israeli, or I would say during the Israeli invasion. Yeah. Not because of the Israeli invasion, but because my younger brother had gotten into Yale. Mm -hmm. The two of us were very close. I'd yes. gotten into Yale. So my intention at the time was to spend a junior year abroad with okay. him, help him yeah. settle down and then come back. But things didn't work out that way. These years, to me, are so important because Ras Beirut, and maybe we can get into this a bit, what it means to you and what it means to me and what it means to the region, it stayed intact. Ras Beirut remained Ras Beirut, more or less until the 80s. And I, I always like these stories of intermingling and normality and I mean, up to a point, tranquility on campus and in the in the neighborhood, 
during what are perceived as the worst years of fighting. Uh, I interviewed Yesma Flehan, Bessa Flehan's wife, and she spoke about their youth growing up in Ras Beirut, and she was only sharing positive memories. And I asked her, what are you talking about? She's like, oh, late 70s, early 80s, it was great. And you know, I, I, I mean, I'm too young to know what that was like, but you grew up in Ras Beirut. Sure. Is this a form of nostalgia now, or do you sense the same thing? Ras Beirut preserved itself as the country broke down, entered war. Sure. So... And First of all, it's a bit uh, of a loose question. Yeah, yeah. First of all, so obviously I grew up with Basil. I think yes. no one yeah. shared <clears throat> quite as many years with him pre-1990 as I did. We were mm-hmm. together in IC. We were you together were for years during the war. Yes, right? classmates yeah. and yeah. friends, three days apart in birth. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we were together for a year at, at AUB, although in very different specialties. Okay, yeah. I lost that baccalaureate year, so I fell behind by one year for graduation. Okay. He came and did his master's at Yale during my senior year. He did his PhD uh-huh. at Columbia while I did my MD. My wife did her master's and PhD, so we saw each other a lot. Abbasid was one of those people who always wanted to come back. But I think one of the reasons he wanted to come back is we had, believe it or not, not just a good childhood, an aware childhood, but a good adolescence and a good teen and early years in Ras Beirut at AUB. Uh, And I don't think this is rewriting history. Yes, there were threats. Yes, there were dangers. Yes, some people we knew died. But there's this phenomenon of individuals, and I think Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this recently, what are called the near misses and the further misses, the people who are impacted and, and grow up with tremendous, you know, samples and examples of war trauma. I volunteered in the emergency room when my father was a dean on occasion, and I still looked at it as a healthy environment, believe it or not. This may sound strange to grow up in. Even during the war, the university was vibrant. Um, The research cut back because of the absence of funding. Uh, You know, what happened was there was an explosion in scientific funding happening in the U.S., and it became difficult for AUB scientists to get to it. They were the humanists and scholars and engineers and everyone else, scientists and physicians, they were teaching, but they couldn't do the same level of research as the war dragged on. But I think there were tremendous opportunity for camaraderie, for socializing, for learning. Uh, The students from the university during the war, after the war, continued to compete well when they went for their graduate education abroad. They went there with a good perspective because they had grown up in a diverse environment. Not just, uh, I would argue, with regard to the diversity of of religious and sects and political parties, but even the diversity of others coming in from entirely different countries. So I noticed when I moved to Yale, for example, and before, that I was much more comfortable with African Americans than the average, That's interesting. Uh, you know, Caucasian American. What's more important that than that? That comes from here. From that comes from here. Yeah. What's more important than that is that my friends who are African Americans notice that level of comfort and lack yeah. of judgment. Yeah. That comes from here. It also comes from my growing up with two very liberal and, and open parents, obviously, uh, but... Uh, and their families. But I really think that Ross Beirut provided that nucleus of openness that was uh, very advantageous for people going abroad. 
Unfortunately, yeah. you want it to, to remain advantageous for people to go abroad and pursue their lives and careers, but you don't want it to become mandatory. And I think what happened, both during the war and afterwards, where there was a an acculturation nationally of, of, of a much larger scale of corruption and yeah. much larger scale of forced immigration. Um, and you and saw this happening yourself. I we mean, did, yeah. I mean, uh, we saw it abroad. We saw that more and more of the yeah. best and brightest who might have stayed yeah. were being forced to immigrate because yeah. of the absence of opportunities right. for all but a few. And so wittingly or unwittingly, and I can't read into the minds of the political leaders at the time, the best and brightest were forced to immigrate. Yeah. And, and very few of them returned, unlike Basil. Basil was an exception rather than the rule. He, yeah, he was. And he, um, to me, he represents Ras Beirut. You, he's, he would have argued that he represents Aynes Halta just as much as Ras Beirut. <laughs> He, he, he himself was from Ras Beirut, grew up in Ras Beirut. His ancestry, of course, was sure. from Mount Lebanon and to some degree from Palestine. But he, uh, he loved Ras Beirut. He was far more comfortable here than in the mountains. But he, sure. like many Beirutis, retains that link to yeah, the you ancestry. Can't, you can't remove that from him, yeah. for sure. But meaning that when he was an MP, mm-hmm. I mean, there's not a sectarian bone in this man. He was, no question. Was zero. And you know him, of course, yeah. You know him well. He was a technocrat in the true meaning of the word. I mean, all these wish, this wishful thinking now for a technocratic government that never happens. He was a technocrat. Yeah, he was. A clean, honest man. And, I mean, I don't think there's any religious or any sectarian or any negative connotation towards his career. Coming back to Lebanon, serving this country, and then paying the ultimate price. But it's war-torn Beirut that I always find it fascinating. That Those are the fond memories of Ras Beirut for people like him, for his wife, maybe for you as well growing up. And I want to know if this is just childhood reflection or if this is a real, that whatever AUB meant for this neighborhood, it stayed. It, it didn't expire when the war broke out. Fast forward a bit. Do you sense that Ras Beirut is the same Ras Beirut today that you grew up with? Well, I mean, I think Ras Beirut in some ways is the same Ras Beirut. Many of the traditional families are here. Many of us who grew up here have some, as they would say, equity, some pied-à-terre, somewhere to live outside the university. But unfortunately, what what isn't the same is that the price gouging and the building of these massive, expensive buildings has priced the middle class, who don't already have a stake in Ras Beirut, out of Ras Beirut. And unfortunately, even some of the traditional families, without shaming them, who have large stakes, mm-hmm. have decided that their goal is to get rich yes. rather than to be inclusive. Do, so, can I, I just interrupt you just for sure, a moment? Sure. You, you remember AUB in the 80s. Yes. And you remember Ross Beirut too. I remember it in the 70s. And in 80s. the 70s too. Yeah. And do, I mean, now the, the juxtaposition of Ross Beirut ending at Bliss and then AUB campus is so severe. You're looking at almost two different cities. What Beirut looked like not too long ago. I I think, sorry to to slightly disagree. I mean, I think our efforts and those of Munahalla in particular in the neighborhood initiative to preserve uh, at least Jean d'Arc and pieces of Ras Beirut and Ayn Rais's cultural memory, so to speak, has 
had some success. But the, 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 just the simple fact that most of the charming buildings on Bliss Street are no longer, even more recently, the Sukrat building that was brought down. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, this is a tr True. big tragedy True. to Bliss Street. Let alone going further down Bliss Street. That's unrecognizable today. True. But d do you remember Ras Beirut as being aesthetically more charming? Yes. In, in, even during the war? I mean, well, I mean, I would say pre-war, no question. Okay. During the war, it was charming, but it was also uh, dangerous. dangerous. It was yeah, dangerous. Sure. I mean, yeah. there were days where we couldn't walk outside. Yeah. Not a few days. Yeah. And uh, where the local militias would have a dispute or the militias in East Beirut and West Beirut would have a dispute. Uh, I think there's still some charm, but yes, you're correct. Uh, there have been efforts to erode Beirut and, in fact, Lebanon's cultural sure. heritage. I mean, you go to the mountains and see pieces of the mountain being knocked down. I mean, let's face it. Universities exist to mobilize people who aspire to a better life, mm -hmm. to become more participatory in society, economically, socially, and in every way, mm -hmm. intellectually, and to take people from, in many cases, from poverty or from working class backgrounds and help them become middle class or yeah. perhaps even more successful. Uh, there are data that have been highlighted yet again during these recent demonstrations that there is a systemic effect to erode Lebanon's middle class that included the way the downtown area was built, that included a lot of the high-rise areas, and that, yes, has invaded Ras Beirut and Ain al-Mraisi. Yeah. And that has had a tremendous impact on us because in an ideal or even in a far-sighted society, you would want our faculty to be able to become stakeholders in the community. I mean, we have superb faculty. You would like them to be able to buy apartments and raise their children Absolutely. off campus. They would yeah. elevate the, the sure. discourse. And the fact that things are priced so ridiculously out of the market, in part because of the law of supply and demand, there's at least five and a half million to six million Lebanese diaspora, yeah. many of them fabulously wealthy. Uh, but these exercises in vanity, these apartments that are unoccupied, are also a mark of a failed and fading state. I mean, they're, they're, most states have to exercise some prudence uh, in, in, in how many vanity buildings you can build that are unoccupied. I like the way you phrase it. So it's fading state, and yeah. these are, this is the consequence of that scenario. If many talented people that have graduated from this university my father included, they've tried their best to prevent that state erosion that you're eloquently describing. But they end up in the same situation, that the, that the system overwhelms them. Those that fight aggressively may end up being exiled or killed in the process. Does AUB, or at least in your mind, is the purpose of this institution to stop that from happening? Or is it beyond AUB's control? that this is just too big of a situation. Hence, AUB falls into the same camp that everyone else does in this country. It produces talent, and that talent cannot translate education to, to policy. I believe they're capable of much more than they realize, and that's, mm. I say that with all mm. respect. Mm. Look, I'm going to be blunt here. You look at what I said in my opening day remarks, in my inauguration, throughout my speeches, and especially in my opening day remarks this year. Yeah. I think we have to look back on history and carefully consider whether we truly are testing our limits. 
The 19th century was a century of people testing their limits, politically with Napoleon and Lincoln and others, uh, uh, scientifically with Darwin and Faraday and Alexander Graham Bell and so many others. And that persisted into the 20th century. But if you look at the second half of the 20th century, it was an era I would call of limits and risks because there had never been two wars like the first and the second world war. And so perhaps the lesson that mankind got is we should be careful. We should be careful. It's too big for us. You know, whether you listen to Eisenhower's original warning about the military industrial complex. Uh, So I'm a student of history, but not a historian. And what I'm going to say needs to be qualified as such. I don't see any limits on what we can do as a university to make a difference here. Mm. I see danger in what we try to do. And that's why I try to proceed cautiously. But once we've decided we're firm, can we change this path that Lebanon and this region sees itself embarked on? Well, I'm going to give you a blunt answer. If I didn't think we could, I would not have come back. Things were just far too good for me, and the opportunity to make meaningful change in the U.S. was unfolding, first on the scale of a cancer center in a state and perhaps beyond. I don't believe that we can make the kind of progress that we must in these societies if we say, the system is too big for me. I don't believe the system is too big for AUB. I believe we can get there. We just have to be wise, and we have to be right a lot more often than we're wrong, and we have to be fair and seen as clearly nonpartisan and not serving our interests only, but serving the greater interests of the individuals and the society that we serve. I think that's the unique toolkit that you have because you're American, obviously. You're Lebanese too. The fact that I think you have a personal stake is far more important than somebody just visiting and doing their term and, and leaving. You, you connect to this part of the world in a, in a personal way. And you have many people you know that paid the ultimate price doing what you're trying to do as well, which is all that you can. Nothing short of that. So I, I, I admire that immensely. So let me just say, I think at least a couple of my predecessors had a very personal stake, and one of them is Malcolm Kerr. You know, Malcolm grew up here. Whatever his citizenship, Malcolm was of AUB, and Malcolm gave everything, and I know that he didn't, and I don't intend to sacrifice everything, but I think you have to believe you can make a difference, and I knew Malcolm, and I know Anne, and I think you have to believe you can make a difference. You have to have more than just a stake in running the institution, but in helping to leverage the institution for a better tomorrow for the peoples of this region. But I agree with you yeah, that, that, that I have a different perspective, I would argue. Part of it is because I grew up in the war, you see. Yeah, yeah. The generation of the war, and I think Michael Young wrote about this in... The Ghosts of Martyrs Square, I think. The Ghosts of Martyrs Square, yeah. but he wrote about this um, after my inauguration, I think he uh-huh. listened with a careful ear and he said, you know, it's time for someone of our generation to pay back and to show that we can not just talk about it, but do it. And I think we can do it on a scale that can't just be confined to the wonderfully noble thing of educating the best and brightest and yeah. taking care of the sickest and serving the community. We have to push for some 
kind of change, and we have to stand for some kind of change, a nonviolent kind of change, a participatory kind of change. And that's important because ultimately, those were the ideals of Daniel Bliss and Howard Bliss, and I think almost every president after them, uh, Bayard Dodge included, Malcolm Kerr certainly included, and I also think we have to stand for that in a time when we're seeing that the lessons of the interwar period, World War I, World War II, of, of exclusive ethnic, religious yeah. nationalism, the dangers of those ideas are wearing off. And I'm sorry to say you're seeing presidents of some of the most powerful countries in the world, not just the United States, Russia, Great Britain, yeah. Hungary, uh, Poland, smaller nations, Places everywhere. Places unexpected. Yeah, yeah, here making these, and some of our own politicians here, making these stridently yes. nationalist, exclusive pronouncements that history has shown don't serve mankind and don't even serve the peoples that they're directing. This is recorded at a time that the campus is closed and there's ongoing protests happening in the heart of Beirut. We don't know, it's too early to see what exactly this will translate to. Uh, you, you mentioned the corruption, and you mentioned the economic pain. Um, I wanted to get your reflection on this. This is not necessarily you as the president of AAB, but it's just as a citizen of Lebanon and this city. You've seen protests happen before. You've seen many more protests, of course, even going back to the war years. You've seen people shouting in Beirut many occasions. Does this feel different to you? So let me go back to say that actually the first protests I remember were not in this country where I, when I was a child in the 60s and the high schoolers marched through our elementary school protesting Vietnam. Oh. I saw the protests on campus here before the war, wow. which shut down the university. And of course, I saw plenty of protests both during the war and at Yale where they were protesting apartheid and wanting Yale to divest and many other things. And I've watched from a distance some of the previous protests here in Lebanon. This does feel different for the following reasons. I don't think it's a unified political protest from a political perspective. Mm -hmm. I think it's a sign of legitimate pain that the majority, I would almost say the overwhelming majority of society is feeling mm -hmm. on three fronts. One their livelihood and their quality of life has deteriorated yes. post-war, yeah. okay? Especially in the last decade, but it's fair to say for many of them post-war. Yeah. Two, what we're seeing is a wide-ranging, and we'll see if it lasts, lack of faith in all of the political leaders without exception. So in yes. the past, yes. you saw protests against one group of leaders or others. This seems to be against all the political leaders. And of course, all around the country. And all around is, the country. Yeah. And third, you're seeing it in virtually every major city and many of the larger towns. Yes, yes. So there is a national celebration, outcry. It's a strange blend of the two against corruption, against the government, against uh, a stagnating economy and even a failing economy against a lack of responsibility and accountability from their own leaders. And remember, 48% or 47% of people voted, and they voted for these same political leaders that they're now exactly. protesting against. Exactly. And this is a mere, you know, 18 months later, not even, right? Yeah. 
So, so this is, it's, it's economic primarily. The pain no, is I think it's not just economic. It's social and it's aspirational. Mm. People are saying the following. Why do I have to immigrate to have an opportunity for a better life? Mm-hmm. Why is the political class spared the pain, but more and more pain is inflicted upon the people? Why aren't people doing more, including us, the universities? Why aren't we making a university education more accessible. And I think, mm-hmm. at least in our institution, I think I can also speak for the University mm-hmm. of St. Joseph, we're trying very hard yeah. to take more and more kids yeah. on full scholarships or other scholarships. And yes. you know, I know for us, we've more than doubled the amount of kids who get full financial aid just in our four years here who slowed down tuition. Oh, really? Under your term? Yeah, That's yeah. Oh, wow. So why can't we do more? And so far, it's a scream about what they won't accept but we're not hearing um, a lot of coming together to provide a platform for for what the future uh, holds. It is very different than any protests, I believe, I've seen in Lebanon before or after, in that there's virtual unanimity, I would say, among the people, and there is a level of confusion and reactiveness among the political classes that we saw manifested from the prime minister, the president, yes. the head of Hezbollah, others, you know, the, prime, the foreign minister. They're reacting, they're stunned, they're trying to figure it out. But it is truly, I believe, a national protest. Um, where it will go, I'm not a good uh, <laughs> prognostician. But if we, I mean... Let's but I do think it's healthy. I mean, I yes. think it's healthy to see the kind of outcry that you see in Lebanon. Yeah. Some estimates from Reuters were between two and two and a half million people. So the majority of the Lebanese citizens were demonstrating yesterday. Yes. Incredible. Yeah. That dwarfs by percentage Sudan, Algeria, Tunisia, other countries. Mm-hmm. And I think it's healthy to have this level of confidence in people that they can participate without putting themselves at risk. That's the great failure of the Arab states, is that people go into the streets and they get beaten up, they get threatened, they get intimidated. I think it's very wise if the government and all the politicians pull back on their threats, listen to the people, Mm -hmm. allow them to express themselves. Don't allow them to break things, obviously, but but listen, listen carefully, and as you would say to a child with a fragile object, don't touch. Don't touch the people. Let them express themselves. Because history will judge those individuals who come and endanger the people. But just very quickly, the platform you're talking about, that always seems to be the final step that's not taken. And we, not too long ago, we saw a massive uprising in downtown Beirut, a genuine sentiment that sovereignty and independence was needed, and there was, maybe it was an easier target, there was the Syrian army, and they left. Of course, you go 15 years later, 14 years later, and the political well-being of this country is, is horrible. Right? It's degraded immensely. That step was not taken. Full sovereignty, full independence. And it almost seems like the system AUB has witnessed throughout its history, the Lebanese power-sharing model, Whatever it is, this sectarian, confessional, power-sharing seems to outlast everything. 
Do you think at the core of these protests there's a yearning for a different system altogether? Or do you think this is a, a, a revolt against an economic and financial and social abuse of society, but not to, not to change the system? True. So I think, uh, you know, you have to look at Lebanon's history. This uh, power-sharing agreement between the sects and the religious factions was not framed in the Constitution, of course. It was yeah. framed in the Mithaq, in the National Pact. And it was consecrated further in the Ta'if. Yes, I believe right. that the framers, and particularly the framer of the Constitution, largely saw an evolution towards a more secular, more mature form of democracy. It's hard to go back and read what Michel Shihan and others intended. Uh, but going to today, there is clearly a cry for a more secular, more sustainable, more inclusive form of government. Yeah. But there's also a cautionary tale. So um, when we look at the history, not just of the Arab world, but of Europe and why it took so long for democracy to take hold, real democracy there as opposed to the United States, which paid in blood for its democracy, right? Yes. You know, Napoleon came as the liberator, but it didn't take him long to become an emperor and to abuse power like others before him, maybe not as much as the Bourbons, but certainly. If you, uh, and I've just finished a, a definitive biography of Napoleon by Andrew Roberts, and I think it's the fairest account of, of his life that I've read. Um, you see that many of the people in the Lebanese Civil War like the speaker, for example, were crying for an end to corruption 30, 35 years ago. Yes, that's true. Right? Yeah. And there's a very good historical precedent for recognizing that there need to be term limits on everything and not just the presidency. The presidency, the prime minister yeah. being a speaker. Yes. Uh, public discourse and, and, and uh, sort of keeping people away from the cookie jar, so to speak. We're seeing the President of the United States bold-facedly trying to have the G7 or G8 summit at his hotel, quote-unquote, at cost. Well, who knows what's at cost? So we're seeing even the American system bend under, frankly, a truly corrupt president, okay? And I'm sorry, I'm going to be blunt here. Um, I don't think we should be holier than thou and say, well, why do we have some widespread corruption? Power corrupts. That's why we limit terms. That's why we have checks and balances in there. So the, the ideal situation is that the platform would be holding the true corruption, the political corruption of this country to account. It wouldn't be now it's time for a secular model and we go forward with that. I think, I think the, you have to do both in parallel. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not a political scientist. But, but here's the challenge that I see. Yeah. When the, this president of the republic was first named and several of us went up to congratulate him as a matter of protocol, mm -hmm. he asked the university presidents yes. to allow political discourse and political parties on our campuses because that was better than sectarian warfare. And my response to him was blunt, was that we do allow any kind of political discourse with indecency yeah but that the political parties are in and of themselves sectarian, hereditary, yes. or just uh, really manifestations of family power, okay? Hereditary, yeah. even worse than hereditary and sectarian across the board. 
Um, and that's true of the newer dynasties, not just the older dynasties, right? right. Some form of real term limiting of, of, of progress will happen. But before we're too harsh on ourselves, look at the largest until recently political party in India. It was hereditary. It was hereditary from arguably the greatest leader in the modern history of India, Jawaharlal Nehru, to his daughter, yes. to his yeah. grandson, yeah. now to his great-grandson. But, so, yeah. so the idea that political parties can be inherited, we're starting to see it in the U.S. with the Kennedy and the Clinton dynasties at least trying. Yes. Clinton, a unidirectional. <laughs> I think we need to not be too harsh on our own people's Democracy is always an experiment. The longest standing one, the American democracy, is showing that it can come under strain. But I do think we need to move towards both accountability and a secular, more secular democracy in much shorter order than the political powers had planned. And does that sound more like a, a confessional representation somewhere in the body politic or and a like a, a parliament that is non-sectarian? So, what, what, so let, let, let me ask seems you... seems to be the hardest... Let me ask you, know. you a, a practical question. Sure. Yeah, yeah. If you had a car and it <laughs> broke down every time or every other time you took it on the road mm -hmm. and you spent thousands of dollars repairing it, would you keep that car or get another car? Get another car. Okay, well, so I had this experiment. My father bought a Ford Tempo yeah. back when Ford believed in... In, in planned obsolescence, the car spent more time in the shop than it did on the road. Mm -hmm. We sold it, we bought it for $8,800, we sold it for 1000 we were glad to get rid of it. Yes. This system is broken. A transition that takes forever from this confessional sharing is mm -hmm. going to fail because okay. the powers that be will not allow it to succeed. Exactly. You need yeah. a more rapid transition to an inclusive, yeah. truly secular, best person for the job, best woman for the man job, sooner rather than later, because they used up all the time when you could have had a, a gradual transition. Now, you don't want necessarily violent revolution, okay? Uh, and, and I'm against any kind of violence. But a slow transition over another 50 to 100 years is only going to continue not just the leakage, the flood of the best and brightest people. And if anyone truly believes that a country can succeed in having more participation, more fairness, by insisting on getting rid of its best and brightest people, then I think they're smoking something a lot stronger than hashish. Well, I think, and I say this as an AUB alumni and as someone who calls Ross Beirut home, even though I don't live in Ross Beirut at the moment, uh, so, something that I took from this university, you work hard, and if you're fair and, and kind and you're, you're, non, you're not corrupt, uh, good things should happen. And good things do happen, unfortunately, when you leave Lebanon. Good things do not necessarily happen when you stay. I hope that tide turns because you're, you're in a way reminding me of what I took from this university. And it shouldn't be just within the boundaries of AUB. So, you know, I'll, I'll close by saying... My late father used to say, when I would ask him why he would do good for people who were not necessarily well-intentioned towards him, he would say, 
I think we need more people who do good things and not just to see what they will benefit from them. I believe this community has led in that for 153 years. I believe in my faculty, my staff, my students' intentions. The overwhelming majority are doing good for the reason to do good. I think that needs to become more resonant. I think you're seeing a lot of these protesters on the streets. They're not self-interested. They're trying to do good. They're asking and they're participating. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting away from all the swearing and the cursing that seems to be a Lebanese art At least art the form. cursing is melodic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, depersonalizing everything, I want to believe that people will understand that they need to do good for the, just for the sole purpose of doing good yes. and that good things will happen to them. And the idea that we can only do good and good things happening to us abroad has to end. We need it to happen here, now. Fadlo, thank you for your time. Thanks, Ronnie. Thank Real you. pleasure. life and have it more abundantly. AUB's motto still stands. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Fadlul Khouri. If you want to stay updated, simply subscribe to your preferred podcast platform or go to our YouTube channel. And if you're enjoying these episodes, please consider a contribution through Patreon. The link is in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.